Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Great podcast today on the GM Shuffle. Coming up momentarily, Mike and I are going to talk to Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated, who is breaking down this massive Houston Astros cheating scandal. He's got a podcast coming through our family, Cadence 13, this summer on 2020. So make sure you check it out. Honestly, listen to what Ben has to say, because he's got lots of interesting details. We're also going to discuss what we did for Valentine's Day and why Bruce Springsteen Day could be coming to New Jersey. But second chances, Mike, Eddie D., Eddie DeBartolo Jr., who has been pardoned by President Donald Trump, this is a guy who was synonymous with winning with regards to San Francisco 49ers for many, many years, and he's been given a second chance here, pardoned publicly by the president. Give me your thoughts on Eddie D. Of course, you've got stories about him. Yeah, I mean, it's truly, I mean, you know, the whole situation, the bribery, all that, and the heart of this man is remarkable. I mean, truly remarkable, and I think that no one can lose sight of that, and, and, and as being around a lot of owners in the NFL, you know, working for the whether it's the 49ers, the Browns, the Patriots, the Eagles, you know, and then the Browns a second time. I mean, he was the most generous person I've ever been. And I was a slappy. I mean, literally, I was driving Coach Walsh around and I was scared to death of him. And, you know, and for Valentine's Day, he would send every employee's wife flowers, you know, for Christmas, he would send. I mean, Millie and I used to, he had like a condo in Menlo Park, which was kind of where we lived. And so, you know, whenever they would clear out the condo, because he would come in and they would buy goods and they clear stuff out, you know, I would end up taking half the quality stuff home with me because it would be, and we would be like, Millie and I'd be looking at, we can't afford to eat this stuff. And it would be like amazing. And, and they would just give it to you. It was truly remarkable. But my greatest Eddie D memory was I'm with my mother and father. Millie couldn't come back because it was tax season. We're getting ready to play the Super Bowl against the Miami Dolphins. I'm standing at the pre-party. No idea what's going on. The Super Bowl wasn't what it was today. You know, there wasn't the security and all that. I'm standing there with my parents, and Eddie D walks over to me and says, meets my parents and says hello and asks me where my tickets are. And he looks at them, and he grabs the three tickets out of my hand, and he gives me three right on the 50. Like, that's the heart of the man. And was he demanding? Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure Coach Walsh would have told stories about how demanding he was. But he was generous, and he was truly a, a family-run business. And you could feel it. And his generosity was remarkable. And and I think it's great. I think that the league, I, I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame for what he was able to build because Walsh wouldn't have been able to do what he did at the 49ers if it wasn't for Mr. D. And so for him to have this removed from his legacy, and I thought what was powerful, and we're not a political podcast by no means, but to see Jerry Rice there, to see the greatest player that I've ever been around in Ronnie Lott there, to me that was a powerful moment to watch. Yeah, and for many people, the greatest player of all time, and Jim Brown there as well. you got Jim Brown, Ronnie Lott, Jerry Rice, they're supporting Eddie D. I mean, this is a guy in 1998 pleaded guilty to failing to report a felony after former Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards extorted $400,000 from him in exchange for Riverboat Casino license. He did not serve prison time, did pay a million-dollar fine probation. But the question is, well, why is Trump pardoning him now? And it's to Mike's point, DeBartolo's phil- phil- philanthropic efforts in the years since his felony conviction apparently were incredible. Generous, passionate support, numerous charitable costs. He did not let that one incident define him, which is something that's very important to see. 
No, he didn't. And I mean, he's just truly, I mean, I say this all the time. You can't cure cheap, right? If somebody's cheap, you can't cure it. Like Fred Palermo, my uncle, used to say that all the time. You can't cure cheap. Like there's no rehab center you can go to cure people. If people stay at the tip chart out and they tip 12%, you can't cure cheap, right? You just can't cure it. There's nothing you can do for it. And what you also can't do is you can't give somebody a big heart. And Mr. D has a big heart. I mean, he has a huge heart. And it, for me, the first owner I have been around to have that kind of heart, it was really, you know, you think all owners are like that? No, 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 no. Not like that at all. He was remarkable. Very, very cool to see the 73-year-old owner getting a second chance. To NFL news, last week brought a report. Lines have talked to teams about a trade involving quarterback Matthew Stafford. And this week, being where they've also discussed moving another veteran player of the team. Adam Schefter's seen the lines have talked about trading cornerback Darius Slay. He's set to make a salary of $10 million in 2020, which would be the final year of his current contract. Apparently looking to land an even bigger payday in his next deal. What do you think, Mike? Should the Lions trade Slay now? Well, look, if they're not going to sign him, which I don't think they will, I mean, poor Slay. I mean, th- they have no pass rush, even though they pay, you know, I mean, look, the Lions are paying huge money to Trey Flowers. I mean, they, it would cost them ridiculous amounts of money to get rid of Trey Flowers. And so they can't. And the Lions, you know, they do have $45 million worth of cap room. Now, the rumor, rumor about Matthew Stafford's ridiculous. It costs them money. Do I think Matthew Stafford would like to go somewhere else and play? Yeah. Do I think the Lions could trade Matthew Stafford? Maybe they would want to in terms of the coach and the GM, but the ownership isn't going to let them trade Stafford. And plus, this is the last year they've got to win. Slay, I mean, I think if they could turn Slay into a hot commodity, but here's the issue. If you're the GM of the team and you're trying to build your team and you go and trade, say you trade a one for Slay, because you could easily say, you know, this draft doesn't have a lot of corners. Slay's really good player. He could be a top level, but now you got to pay him. So not only do you give up an asset in terms of your draft pick, now you've increased your cap, right? So it becomes a double-edged sword for you. Is it really worth it? Is it really kind of, is that what you want to do? And I'm not sure. You know, like I've been working on my next book and I've been researching people and for the book and, and I came across the Vogels. Have you ever heard of the Vogels? I have not, no. The Vogels are these two people that lived in New York City that one was a postman and the wife was a librarian. They lived in a 450-square-foot apartment, rent-controlled apartment, and they decided in their life that they were going to buy art. So they would buy art, but they didn't buy art at the Darius Slay price. They bought art before it became Darius Slay. And so over their lives, they amassed a multi-million dollar art collection in this little 450-square-foot apartment, okay? Why? And why are the similarities between the Vogels and in the NFL there is because the Vogels could identify talent at a reduced rate and it grew. The Vogels didn't want to pay for Slay at a high rate. And that is the essence of the NFL. And that we're going to hear a bunch of trades. We're going to hear a bunch of players going to get dumped off. The true genius is to be able to find that great player, to like the, to find that great piece of art that's going to go up in value, not it's going to go down. Seattle signs Greg Olson for $8 million a year. If I were as good as John Schneider is at his job, I would think, look, I'm not going to take a risk on Olsen. He's always hurt. He's not going to play all the time. I put $8 million in him. That's a little bit of a liability. I'm going to go find me the next Greg Olsen. I think you've got to take that Vogel approach. 
Well said. Olsen visited with Buffalo, Seattle, and Washington. Apparently felt most comfortable with the Seahawks. A one-year deal there. Five and a half million of that money is guaranteed. Before we get to Ben Ryder, of course, every week we're doing, where in the world is Tom Brady going? And one of Philip Rivers' former teammates of the past five seasons, Melvin Gordon, believes the 38-year-old will go into the Indianapolis Colts. That's as far as Rivers. That's interesting because that's one of the teams we talked about, Mike, maybe Brady going to the Colts. So what's the latest here on Tom? Well, I mean, look, the report that the Raiders are going to offer him 60 million. See, I think that's legitimate. I think the Raiders are definitely going to be players on on Tom Brady. I, I think they will be. What they offer him, I don't know. But they do have a caveat, and there's they have Derek Carr. And they have Carr, and they could trade Carr. He's under contract until 2022, but his contract is easily tradable. So they have an asset, so they could replace it. To me, as we said on the last week pod, the one thing we know for certain is the Raiders don't love Carr. No matter how much the Carr family wants to complain about it, that's a fact. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because certainly the rumor mill will not be quieting down when it comes to Tom Brady or what the Raiders could be doing. Coming up after the break, special guest, Sports Illustrated writer Ben Ryder will be on a break down the huge Astros cheating scandal, part of a new Cadence 13 sports docuseries exploring compelling stories and people from the world of sports. All that and more, plus Sinatra and Palm Springs on the way here on the GM Shuffle. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Well, obviously, this Houston Astros story has been everywhere, and it's a pleasure to bring in Ben Ryder, who's now a teammate of me and Mike's here at Cadence 13. There's a podcast series talking about the Astros sign-stealing scandal, which is coming out summer 2020, in addition to a TV series as well. I happened to run into Ben yesterday at MLB Network. He's on what we call the car wash. He's everywhere promoting this for good reason, because it's a tantalizing subject. So, Ben, we really appreciate the time today on the GM Shuffle. First and foremost... I think there's a lot of layers to this, and obviously we can get into all of it, but my first thought is I was never a guy who said any bad publicity is good publicity, but when LeBron James is tweeting about Major League Baseball in February, I seem to think that's a good thing. I just think that this story has legs everywhere, and listen, you don't want it to overwhelm and overshadow baseball once it begins, but people are talking baseball in February. To me, that's a good thing. It's ironic, isn't it, Adnan? Like, Rob Manfred has for years, for almost his entire commissionership, bemoaned the lack of broad coverage of Major League Baseball, especially vis-a-vis the NFL and the NBA. He's, you know, criticized 
his most talented player, Mike Trout, for not being a bigger personality like the NBA guys, for not being more outspoken. Well, this is the thing, right? Like, Mike Trout was finally outspoken, uh, not in the way Rob Manfred would have ever wanted or anticipated, saying uh, how outrageous the Astros sign-stealing scandal was, how he believed the players themselves should have probably been punished. Now you've got LeBron James jumping on it. I mean, this is the sort of February in one way for which Rob Manfred has always dreamed. Of course, in a real way, it's a nightmare for him I, in, in kind of a more general sense. Ben, this is such a fascinating story. And, and, you know, obviously Adnan and I are both movie buffs and especially mob movies. But in The Irishman, I think it was the character Angelo Bruno who said, you know, the only way three people can keep a secret is when two of them are dead. Like my first reaction to this is with so many people involved, how did they think it was not going to get out? That's something I've been thinking about uh, from the moment the story broke uh, by Evan Drellick and Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic. There are just so many people involved in this with knowledge of it, dozens and dozens and dozens of them in the Astros organization, many of whom move on all the time, right? Baseball players get cut all the time. They move to other teams all the time especially the Astros in particular, have had a lot of turnover the past couple of years as other teams have kind of seen their success and have wanted to bring their people aboard to perhaps replicate it uh, themselves. So I was wondering, how do these guys think it was not going to get out? And you know, one of the things I kept coming back to was either this sort of behavior was more of a norm on some level, or at least some version of this behavior was more of a norm in Major League Baseball uh, then perhaps we realized, or maybe the Astros guys thought it was more of a norm than it actually was. And that gets to an interesting part of it, Ben, because you, you know there's certainly going to be other players who may be hesitant to say something, although it's interesting. John Smoltz, the Hall of Fame pitcher, said to me after Cody Bellinger lashed out very publicly saying, you know, the Astros have been cheap for three years and Altuve stole the MVP from Judge. You know, Smoltz said, listen, you better be careful. you got to make sure there was nothing going on in your building because I don't know if this was rampant, but I don't think the Houston Astros were an isolated example. But what I want to ask you about, Mike made a great Irishman reference, so now I have to give another one. It's when um, Angelo Bruno, Kaitel's character, says to De Niro, now is not the time to not say. And this whole issue about the players not being punished, which is what LeBron opined about, which is what Mike Trout said, which is what everybody, John Lester, I mean, everyone's got an opinion on this. Ben, you know, as well as I do, when Rob calls those guys in and says, listen, tell me what happened. You know, I've got to, you got to give them immunity, otherwise they're not going to say. Because if he starts suspending guys, if he gave Correa 30 games and Altuve 30 games and George Springer and Marwin Gonzalez, who isn't on the Astros anymore, who's now on the Twins, like how do you start punishing guys left and right? All of a sudden, what, the whole team's suspended? You're just calling up AAA guys? And the union would have fought that. There would have been grievances. So I, I understand Rob's point that how can I get to the bottom of what happened if I don't give these guys some latitude um, with which to tell me what happened? I think you're absolutely right. I have to say that when players arrived at spring training, I did not anticipate the widespread anger that was going to be emanating out of rival clubhouses about this. Of course, you expect some level of anger, but this seems like legitimate fury coming from everywhere, right? Like it was Justin Turner, fury directed at both the commissioner and the Astros. 
It was Nick Markakis of the Braves saying those guys, meaning the Astros, all deserve a beating, right? Like, we don't hear baseball players talk about other baseball players in this way ever, right? We didn't hear it in the steroids era. We've never heard it. Um, I'm still trying to process this and trying to figure out exactly where is this coming from. Was it actually the offense? Was it the way the Astros had conducted themselves, you know, so confidently, some would say arrogantly, some would say brashly, over the past several years as they rose from the worst team in baseball to champion? I'm not sure, but I think you're right. Like, I think if these guys step back and think about it a little bit, it's not a great idea for the players uh, for the union to call for the commissioner to violate immunity agreements he's made with members of their union, uh, to call him to kind of go above and beyond negotiated penalties. Like it gets into a lot of tricky areas that I think once their rankers died down a little bit, uh, they might have some second thoughts about. You know, the thing that I keep wondering is, you know, maybe because I've been watching Succession and, I'm, and and the paperwork always seems to come back to haunt people. You know, when Rosenthal reports this in 17 or 18 in The Athletic, right, there has to be paperwork between Houston and then Manfred. It may reach his desk. And, like, why wasn't he doing more about it then than now? It's like, to me, the more this lingers, the attack and the paperwork that lingered, is it going to reach his desk and he's going to have to face possible suspension or determination or whatever? Do you think it could get to the commissioner level? I'm not sure. You know, I think the commissioner is safe as long as he has the majority of the owners in the league's backing. Right. But I think you do point to something that's perfectly reasonable, which is that this was a known problem for many years, not with the specificity of which we know it, know it now, but clearly the fact that all of the video resources that had flooded into the game, in part with Major League Baseball's blessing as far as replay rooms uh, that were located close to the clubhouse, cameras all over the place, uh, that all of this had led to some issues as far as enabling the explosion of a practice that had been integral to the game for over 100 years, which is sign stealing. And, you know, what was preventing teams from going over a line that still seems a bit hazy to me as far as what's the difference from if you're using video to allow a runner at second base to steal the signs versus if you're directly transmitting it. Like, obviously, it's a level of degree that's worse. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out on the moral scale why it's clearly considered to be so much worse. Uh, But, yeah, it was clear that Major League Baseball didn't really want to deal with this. They issued some regulations back in 2017. They talked about it a little bit. They didn't really want to make it a big thing until they absolutely had to this offseason. And now, frankly, they're playing catch-up and not doing such a great job with it. And the follow-up is why wouldn't they – like, look, I'm not an expert on the Bluetooth communication, but to me it seems fairly obvious that the catcher and the pitcher could be able to communicate to one another without putting signs down, just verbally covering your mouth and saying, I'm throwing a slider here, I'm throwing a curveball. Like, how hard could that be? <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because teams have been aware of this. That's why in the playoffs you saw these complicated sign systems. The Washington Nationals, in particular in the World Series, change their signs all the time to make them virtually unhackable. Like clearly the league should have been working 
on a way of transmitting signs that weren't so easily hackable via video. I actually like the solution I think first proposed by Joel Sherman, who Adnan and I know very well from the MLB Network, columnist from the New York Post. He calls it Amish baseball. Just get technology off the field during the game period, then you don't have these problems. You know, there's no real reason to have a replay review room accessible by the teams. You know, you can have a challenge system. If a manager or a team can see an issue with the play with the naked eye that they think there's a problem with, they challenge it. But I think if you get all this technology off the field, a lot of these issues instantly go away. Talk with Ben Ryder, longtime baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. He's got a new podcast series. Talk with this Astro scandal. It's coming out in summer of 2020, so make sure you look it out. It is through our company, Cadence 13. He's also the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All, which means he's a real expert on this because Ben, way back when, was a soothsayer. 2014 cover, he said the Astros are going to win it all, and they did it. So, Ben, I, I, you, you, I don't want to make you the subject of this, but I, you're a fascinating guy to talk to about this because you dealt with the inner workings of this team. You were brazen enough or confident enough to realize this pipeline of talent which was emerging with Bregman and Springer and Altuve was eventually going to hit. How do you now look back at your book, at the organization, at all the research you did, at a team and, and a guy in Jeff Lunau, you know, who wants to win at all costs? If that means bend the rules a little bit, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, look, I'm still trying to figure out how all of that worked. I spent so much time on this story uh, you know, starting in 2014, after long negotiation, I kind of negotiated access to the front office for a period of time. I sat in on their draft meeting with the whole front office gathered together to talk about who they were going to pick with the 1-1 that year. That's the first overall pick in the draft. Uh, this is the sort of access I've been hoping for for any team for a decade at that point, almost. Uh, and I finally got it. And I was drawn to the story, really, by how bad they were at the time. They were the worst baseball team in 50 years, at least over a three-year period. They were a disaster, right? They were called the Disastros. Uh, they were putting up local TV ratings of 0, 0.0 in Houston. meant that Nielsen couldn't verify that one Houstonian had watched their games. So I kind of wanted to go down there to figure out what was going on? You know, what was the plan? Was there any plan whatsoever? I went down with really just an open mind. I came away thinking that there was a plan. It was one that I'd never seen before or heard of before. The way they were committed to process, the way they were committed to leveraging analytics in a very disciplined way, combining their analytics with human observation to get the best out of both man and machine. It really seemed as if they were um, in the nascent stages of building something new and something special, which is what led to that cover prediction uh, and what led to my coverage of them over the next four to five years, during which time it kind of improbably worked out. Now, I think that two things can be true. I think that this can still be a very innovative organization that invented, that were pioneers of, that was on the vanguard of so many things that have now proliferated across baseball and across sports. You know, in many ways, so many positive things about helping guys figure out how to get the most out of their skills, about properly identifying and evaluating talent, you know, about committing to a process over kind of hoping for an outcome. I think those things are all good. I think that there was clearly this darker side 
to the operation. And I'm going to try to figure out in my podcast exactly how this thing happened, you know, how this emerged as part of the operation. But there's a darker side of the operation such that perhaps, and I'm speculating a bit here, that this edge-seeking culture, a culture committed to finding an edge in everything above all costs, could have led them to the embracing of an edge that was not as positive, to put it mildly. That's where I wanted to kind of go. Like, how did this start? Like, where did the genesis of this, did this intern who invented dark arts, is he the guy that said, hey, if you know, if we you know, almost like Gilligan's Island. They got this structure code, Mars code, you know, it's like, did he come up with the plan and then he put it to Ludnow and Hench and say, okay, here's what I think we can do for the hitters. And then, I mean, to convince baseball players that they're going to buy in or any pro athlete that you're going to be able to deliver on the goods you promise them, there's got to be a little bit of a, you know, a trust factor. Like it's got to be proven. Like if I went into a, a scouting room and I told the defensive lineman, anytime the center's left hand is on his hip, it's definitely going to be a pass. When it's dangling in between his legs, it's a run. They're going to challenge me on that, right? They're not taking it for gold. Like, how did this become gold? Well, that's certainly what I'm going to investigate uh, in the next several months, putting together this podcast. The origins of how this happened are, I'm sure, multifactorial, and they're still a bit muddy, Mike. Uh, look, the Astros were very good at figuring out kind of underlying truths, right, and how the game worked. I think it's not that hard to envision over time a slippery slope in which, yeah, maybe the front office gave the players some resources how to do this. A lot of this was certainly player-directed. As I said, like the very concept of stealing signs was not something that was outlawed in baseball, right? This is something that's been going on for hundreds of years. So maybe over time – if you're players or even the front office, it's hard to kind of differentiate the new way in which you're doing it from the way it's always been done. Plus, it was such a clear advantage, right? It was helping everybody. I think there was probably a sense in the clubhouse, as I said, that everybody in the league was going to be doing this in some way just because it was so obvious. I'm sure they had some proof that other teams were doing it. Do I think it's possible that the Astros were better at it because they were so savvy or came up with a more complicated system. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Maybe they were the best of it, but I certainly can imagine a general sense in the clubhouse that, Hey, this is what's happening in baseball right now. Everybody's doing it to us. We're going to beat them at this game. It's gamesmanship. It's part of the game. Uh, clearly they knew to hide it, but you know, stealing signs had never been out in the open. This been kind of a somewhat tacitly accepted practice. And I think it's the sort of thing that snowballed from there into what now is and seems like the biggest scandal in baseball in decades. It's really remarkable that it's taken pre over. I mean, the steroid thing to me was so obvious and it did impact the game like it did in football during the 70s because, you know, we saw a lot of players, you know, but they didn't really understand what steroids was about in the 70s. I mean, it was just it was supposed to be. I know when I first got started in scouting steroids was looked at as you're trying to help yourself it wasn't going to hurt your body and then we found out through medicine that it became just dramatically uh devastating to what you were trying to do to your body but the steroid thing to me is is bigger but i i have a sense that this we we're just on the cusp of this ben i think this is going to be bigger and i and i think if i were the commissioner you know, I would be a little bit like Logan Roy and try to contain this because I think this is because there's no freaking way 
that some player left at Houston and went to some other team and didn't say, hey, man, we should do this, right? Like, it's got to be elsewhere, right? If you remember, Mike, the initial athletic story that started to blow this open, the second part of the headline was part of an epidemic in Major League Baseball, right? Suggesting that, yes, the Astros maybe were the worst violators, at least the first violators to be revealed. But this is something that was going on across Major League Baseball. That's how the story was framed from the beginning. That's been lost a little bit. Like, yes, the Red Sox were waiting for their punishment to come down. I don't expect it to be as severe, although it'll probably be pretty severe. I think the commissioner's office and the owners of the club are very incentivized to limit the damage to where it stands, right? Um, I think I agree with you that it's hard to believe that this thing doesn't spread. Now, is it just a matter of degrees? You know, if you could be like, oh, well, the Astros are the worst of it. Everybody else is just doing a little bit. Maybe that'll help. But, like, to me, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to draw the line between what is, you know, outrageous behavior that deserves a beating and what's just kind of more in line with a slightly more modern version of something that's always happened in the game. I don't know. I mean, one thing is for certain is that this story is not ending when the Red Sox penalties are announced. Right, which we're expecting next week, Ben. So that you're right. That could have more repercussions if all of a sudden they were guilty of similar infractions. Okay, who's the next team, et cetera? Or is that it? Does the commissioner's office say, okay, we got two teams. We don't want this to distract from the season. Ultimately, we all know this. You always need a great villain in every story. And the Astros are now that villain in Major League Baseball. And what I think is fascinating, listen, guys like you and me can't wait for the season to start anyways. But now, oh my God, every Houston Astros game is going to be disseminated like the Zapruder film. If they get off to a great start, Ben, it's amazing. Because then they're going to get emboldened and say, screw you guys. Yeah, fine, we cheated, but we, you know, we, we did win road games, okay? You know, the, the, the method wasn't 100% foolproof. We're still great players. We're proving it to you now so you can stick it. But, of course, even more fascinating is a great team like that, if they get off to a bad start, if Altuve all of a sudden is in a, a 1 for 25 slide and he's not taking his jersey off no matter what, then you'll really get these cat calls. So I, I think I just can't wait for the season to begin. And, and obviously with your podcast coming out this summer, there's no shortage of material with which people are going to be watching these Astros games. <laughs> You're right. I actually even thought too much about, you know, if these guys get off to an absolutely terrible start, how that thing might snowball publicly. I frankly think the bigger obstacle to their success this year than presumably not benefiting from any sign stealing slash any hangover or continuance of this uh, backlash are the Yankees and the Dodgers, right? Like, it's the first season in several years in which when I'm looking at the league as an analyst, I'm not thinking, oh, the Astros are the favorite again. Uh, There are at least two other seemingly more talented superpowers out there. Well, it's certainly going to be an amazing story. Last one for you before we let you go, Ben. And again, we appreciate the time. I know how busy you are right now. You know, Jason Stark, our friend, was saying this is the biggest scandal in 100 years since the Black Sox scandal. Can you? I'm sure you'll do this in the podcast series as well, and obviously in your stories in SI, but what parallels would you draw for like a, you know, a 15-year-old baseball fan listening to this podcast right now who isn't intimately familiar with Eddie Seacott and Charles Comiskey and Shoeless Joe Jackson? What parallels would you draw between what happened with the Black Sox and what happened with this Astros team? <laughs> well, look, I, I certainly think the Black Sox scandal was worse you know, as far as intentionally losing a World Series for gamblers. That's not exactly what they did here. But this is certainly one of those scandals that comes along every couple decades that will shape 
the sport. I mean, you know, you can go back to the steroid era as probably the most recent one that is uh, kind of comparable. I guess, again, the difference is just the anger in the rest of the league, right? Like I was thinking about this. We were talking about it a little bit at the MLB Network yesterday, why players weren't attacking other guys during the steroids era uh, in a similar way, especially because those guys were doing something that's obviously much more dangerous, uh, you know, much in some ways a bigger competitive advantage. I think it's because, look, if you're going after steroids users, you can convince yourself that you're actually also going uh, going after the guy standing next to you in the clubhouse, right? This thing was kind of insinuated throughout the sport, whereas here there's a very clear target. There's a very clear other you can attack, and it's the Astros, right? I mean, I think that that kind of allows players to be like, Forget what we might have been doing in our clubhouse as far as stealing signs. That was kind of a normal operation. What these guys did is worse. They are now the clearly defined villain. Certainly going to set up an interesting dynamic immediately and for a long time to come. And how about the Washington Nationals? World Series champions and no one's checking out. what Mike Rizzo had that great quote the other day. We're only the World Series champions. We had three media guys here and 47 are talking to the Astros. That's just the way that life goes right now. (laughs) Ben Ryder. Great writer. First and foremost, you can read his work in Sports Illustrated. His book, Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All, was a couple years ago. He's now got a podcast series coming out summer 2020, a TV series in conjunction as well. Cadence 13, a part of it. Ben, thanks so much for the time, man. This was really illuminating. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ben. All right, great stuff there from Ben Ryder. We come back here on the GM Shuffle. Mike and I will talk further about this Astros situation. Plenty more to unpack, certainly. Plus, what happened with the Cleveland Cavaliers parting ways with John Beeline and what we can learn from that situation throughout professional sports. That's next. Well, Mike, certainly great stuff there from Ben Ryder talking about this Astros scandal. All your years in the NFL, all your years as a sports fan. Have you ever seen anything like this? No, but I mean, look, this cheating, the stealing of signals. There's a reason why we have radio helmet communications in the NFL. It's because they clear, you know, we could steal signals left and right. I mean, in the NFL. And, and trust me, there's people in the Hall of Fame that have done it. And, you know, and that just was part of the fabric. Now, you know, the Patriots extended themselves by videotaping it, which wasn't right, which is a little bit – I'm surprised there hasn't been more parallels here. But in the NFL, I mean, even if you know they're running zero blitz, you know, they could check out of it. You know, whereas if they put – you know, if you know you're getting a slider, you're getting a slider, right? You know, so that happens in sports. For me, like in anything that gets uncovered – I always feel like we're just at the tip. Like, we really don't know the whole thing. Like, there's always the crisis management and there, how do we handle the situation PR-wise, and there's always containment. And for me, the hard part I'm having with is how, as I said to start it, is like, you know, how do you keep a secret? Like, how can anybody keep a secret in this stuff? Like, you know, I can remember being at, at Universal Studios and Art Modell was sitting on a bench with Leon Hess and they were having a conversation and Modell called me over to ask me a question and and I said something like, well, this is confidential. And, and Mr. Hess says to me, he says, do you know when he puts up one finger, when one person knows and then another one knows, that means 11 people know. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never forgot that, right? And so like for me, as I'm reading all this about the Astros is like, somebody knows like there's like 
like it isn't like Tom who's burning the documents and Greg's over there keeping two pages. It isn't like the Roy thing, you know. Like this is some serious shit. And and I think there's an absence of leadership by the commissioner because he's not really. There's something he's holding back. It just feels that way to me. You cover baseball more, but that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, I think it's definitely a situation, Mike, to your point. You don't want to be the commissioner in baseball. We're coming in every day going, hey, you know what? We just found something on the Yankees. Oh, guess what? We just found something on the Dodgers. You kind of go, hey, listen, probably a bunch of these teams were doing it. The Astros, as Ben said, maybe were the most egregious. Like, using a trash can to get signals. I mean, like, come on. What are we doing here? So he goes, the commissioner says, fine. I got to make a message. I got to set an example. These guys, fine. They're the worst defenders of it. But everybody else, hey, knock it off. Whatever you did, whatever you didn't do, from now on, moving forward, you guys already knew it was wrong. But just to be clear, <laughs> I suspended their manager and the GM for a year. Then both those guys got fired. Alex Cora lost his job with the Red Sox. Carlos Beltran was going to be the manager of the Mets. He's gone. So all these guys lost their jobs. Everybody, knock it off, because next time it's going to be a lot worse. And... You know, it's funny how everybody has an opinion about it. You know, Giancarlo Stan came out and said, I would have had 80-plus home runs if I knew what was coming. Which, i got to be honest, Mike, again, back to Ben's point, my, my first thought, I swear to God, was like, this has always been part of the game. Like, if, if I'm on second base and I steal a sign, I'm smart. I'm crafty. But, but if you use technology, all of a sudden now you're a cheater and it's like the worst thing in the world. And I'm like, okay, like I, I get that it's wrong, but I, I find it fascinating how there's this leap from crafty brilliance to just disgusting cheating. And the way that all these other guys are coming out slamming them, I'm like, man, you, you better be careful. There's nothing going on in your house. Exactly. And the commissioners should come out and really like take a proactive approach to this and say, look, we know what's going on. It's stopping here. Now, my question is, do you think the Astros... You know, now their their owner, Jim Crane, was a disaster. Like, who was advising this guy when he came to PR? I mean, seriously, that firm should be fired. I mean, you know, what Logan Roy told his – I pay you a million dollars for that? I mean, Crane should say go to his guy and say, I pay you whatever I pay you. You're fired. Like, you, I look bad. It's your fault, right? But, like, Manfred – do you think they're paying Hinch and Ludd now? Do you think they're paying their salaries? Or do you think because they fired him for cause? Yeah, I think Hinch and yeah, – I don't think they get a dime. I don't think they do either. Yeah, I think fired with cause. So Hinch and Lunau do not get the rest of the remaining salaries. I do think you get second chances in baseball. I feel like, you know, obviously reputation makes a big impact. Hinch is well-liked throughout the game. It's going to take time. It's not like you get fired and all of a sudden you come back next year. Maybe in a couple of years, all right, bench coach, you're working way up. You come in there. Lunau is a different one. Like, people don't really like the guy. So all of a sudden, when you're not well-liked among your peers and then you get burned like this, like, no no one's going to be willing to extend that olive branch and say, okay, here's that second chance. But, but, but you make a great point about how to handle things. I mean, that press conference could not have been handled worse. Mike, we've all made mistakes in life. It's okay. Just come out. You say, I'm sorry. I'm accountable. It's my fault. I'll never do it again. And that's it. You don't You don't say, like, some of the stuff these guys are saying, Carlos Correa came out the other day we won fair and square. Are you kidding? You can't say that. You can't, Even if you feel it, just go, I'm sorry. I get where these guys are coming from. What happened was Correa was upset at what Bellinger said, and then Correa speaking on Altuve's behalf saying, well, he wasn't cheating. He said, let me tell you something right now. Cody Bellinger isn't what he's talking about. Jose Altuve was never cheating. He's the one guy that didn't use it. So if you don't know the facts, you should shut the F up. This is not the time to say that, Mike. This is the time to just go, I'm sorry. we loved it. You do that years from now. Write a book. Do whatever you want. Don't do it now. It's horrible. Right. And and I think this, until Altieri can explain his big pussy moment where he wouldn't take off the sweatsuit and he wouldn't take off the shirt. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm I'm a little confused here. I mean, Puss wouldn't take off the sweatsuit when he went for the steam with uh, Paulie, you know? 
I mean, I'm bothered by that. Yeah, the reason that Correa gave on Altuve's behalf, he said the first part is that Correa's, they did it earlier in the year, and then Altuve's wife told Correa, hey, don't do that again. I don't want my husband shirtless on the field. And the other reason is Altuve had a half-finished tattoo, which he was embarrassed by. So he said, I don't want to rip the jersey off and look at this ugly tattoo. That's the reason. Well, Puss had a back injury, so it all <laughs> falls in there. So I get it. It all comes together. I love it. Uh, obviously, this Astros story has been really fascinating. And it always hit us up on the mailbag as well. If you have questions, like Mike said, he's surprised in some ways. I agree with him. People haven't drawn more of a connection, at least with the Patriots. They're just technology and sports. So hit us up, the gmshuffle at gmail.com. Another major story in sports, and of course, we, you know, we talked NFL off the top, but another major story here, which I think Mike has interesting perspective on, is John Beeline being out as the Cleveland Cavaliers head coach. This is the, <laughs> this is the way you can define the words brief and tumultuous 14 and 40 record the worst record in the eastern conference second worst in the nba ahead of only the golden state warriors who have of course been hit by injuries beeline signed a five-year contract mike when i was at espn i covered college basketball for a number of years this was a guy who was well respected a good reputation university of michigan was a guy who was highly sought after and yet it goes in a disaster and one of the most infamous moments of his tenure is apparently when he told the players while breaking down video you're playing like a bunch of thugs which when you say that to a room full of African-American players is not going to go over well. And Woj reported how upset the guys were. And then Beeline came back and said, no, uh, maybe that's what I said, but I meant to say a bunch of slugs. I don't know what the hell happened, but once you lose the room, Mike, you're in trouble. And the record indicates this team wasn't very good anyways. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the concept of hiring the guy, you know, when you listen to Gilbert at the press conference, he wanted somebody who he knew he was going to be bad. He wanted somebody who could make talent better. That was the whole concept behind Beeline. And he offered him money. I don't understand why the guy would leave Michigan to take the Cavs job and know he was going to lose. I mean, the one thing I admire about Brett Brown when he was doing the process, he's been seven years in Philadelphia. His patience and his ability to coach losing and be so positive really re was remarkable. I can remember Belichick came to me one time. We were up there, and he says, you know this guy, Brett Brown? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, he wants to come in and spend some time with me. And I said, yeah, Bill, I'm just telling you. Look, I think the guy's remarkable. I've watched him coach. He, winning and losing doesn't, doesn't affect his ability to coach. He teaches. He works hard. I mean, I love him. I think he's great. He takes way too much shit from Sixer fans because, you know, they, they all shill for the greatest player of, of all time in Joel Embiid. But, but my point here, the story is, is there's certain coaches that don't fit, right? Like that was never going to be a good fit. It was never going to work. He's an older guy who's probably used to winning. He's been successful. I mean, like Billy Donovan has done a remarkable job at Oklahoma, and he's used his college experience to rebuild that program. Plus, they're not as shitty as most people thought they were. So for me, you know, you, you know, when you do this, now the question is, will Texas hire Beeline? Will they go and hire him if they fire their coach, right? Is he going back into the college, and can he go back into the college with what he said at the, to the Cavs players? I think that's going to be interesting, and that certainly will be a recruiting factor when it comes time. And he can say slugs. The, I mean, he can change, but the reality of it is, is it's going to be hard on him to do that. Yeah, once you're tainted and you lose respect of guys and I mean integrity, credibility, all of that, I, you're right. It's very, very tricky. In general, you're right just about college coaches never succeeding necessarily at the pro level. Sometimes it's just not a right fit, the organization, et cetera. Donovan is a good example. But everyone points to Rick Pitino. I mean, Pitino, one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time, and you look at what happened with the Celtics, it's crazy. Sometimes it just doesn't translate for guys. There's a difference between the college game and the NBA.
No, there is. And I think you have to have, if you're going to rebuild, that's great, right? You got to have a mindset of a coach who's not going to get all frustrated because he loses. And when you hire a veteran guy who's used to winning, you know, Brett Brown waited a long time to become a head coach. And so Donovan went to Oklahoma City to coach two of the, you know, he had a good team. He was coaching good players. He had Westbrook. Then they changed it. And now he's kind of has a chance to reestablish himself. So to me, it was really a bad fit to begin with. We'll see what happens in Cleveland. I mean, I just read that they are now even with the Browns for having the most turnover at head coaches. I think they, the Browns and the Cavs are the same in, in where they are. So it's it's fascinating. I mean, look, I think there's certain jobs for certain people, and I think we oftentimes look elsewhere. And it can't be money because Michigan was paying. It can't just be that it's money. Some Money doesn't solve any problem. No, no question. All right, this is a really good episode of GM Shuffle. I want to close with this. Valentine's Day, Mike. I used to mail it in on Valentine's Day. I've been married to my lovely wife, Amen, for 12 years. I would get flowers, chocolates, the routine. But I said, okay, you got to start getting better at this. We're making some good bread now. So I surprised her. I went and saw a musical. She had no idea. I had the babysitter, kids. All were, everybody was in uh, cahoots on this thing. Went and saw the Temptations musical. Ain't oh. too proud. Phenomenal. You got to take Millie. I'm telling you right now, I'm 41. My wife's 34. The median age was 60, but it was great. All right, it's baby boomer heaven. The temptations, the footwork, the music. You got to go see Ain't Too Proud on Broadway. It's incredible. I need to do that. I love that. I saw Beautiful with Carol King, and, and I cried through the whole thing. I thought it was incredible because it was part of my growing up, the Tapestry album and Temptations. I, I, I definitely have to put this on. There's nothing better than going to a Broadway play. There really isn't. I mean, it's just just a great experience to see. And, you know, it's it's funny how these people go on stage. They act six days a week or seven, five days a week. Actually, they do it twice on Wednesday. And to know that some NBA guys, because of load management, can't come out there. And meanwhile, you know, and the tickets, meanwhile, I'm paying just as much money. So I, that was awesome. I mean, you know, Valentine's Day is, it's good to have those little surprises. It was just dinner, you know, gifts for me. It was great. We had a good time. But I think when you do the Broadway play that you do New York City, it just takes it over the top. Well done. Thank you, man. I agree with you. Definitely Broadway shows are, are always underrated. And like you said, it's expensive, but you're getting bang for your buck here. I mean, the effort these guys are putting in day after day, move oh. after move. I mean, it's uh, it really is amazing. Last thought here for you, because apparently I saw this. I thought of you right away. Last chance to enter a contest to hang with Bruce Springsteen on the Ashbury Park boardwalk. Are you aware of this? Yeah, I am. I am aware of it. I, you know, I've kind of calculated my odds. I don't think they're very good. I, I mean, I'm going back to square one on how to shake his hand. I just want to kiss the ring. It's not that complicated, right? <laughs> but I would l- look to walk on the Asbury boardwalk and be like Puss and and Tony and stand there. Remember when when the two Patsies were up there on the boardwalk, the Parisies? You know, they you know, and his face was blown out. I, I mean, just the scenes of the Asbury Park boardwalk are great, and and Sil doing his best uh, Al Pacino going down the line. Uh, you know. But I, I, I'm going to get it done. Eventually, it's going to have to happen. I'm going to have to make. I'm just going to have to kiss the ring. It has to happen because there's this contest where you and a friend get to hang out with Bruce on the Ashbury Park Boardwalk. It ends. Uh, we're recording this on uh, on Wednesday, Wednesday, February nineteenth, midnight tonight. And apparently, I mean, I don't even know how much money this is going towards, but it's benefiting the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles, nonprofit organization. But just walking, the winner will be announced around March fourth. And and this is even bigger news. They're talking right now about a Bruce Springsteen day in Jersey. Officially could be coming to... How has this not happened, Mike? It should be. His birthday should be a state holiday. We should. Do you know the, the person who owns the most bonds in the state of New Jersey is Bruce Springsteen? Are you serious? Seriously. That's a fact. 
That's his way of giving back to the community without ever publicizing. It's like Sinatra. There's a great documentary on Sinatra, Sinatra in Palm Springs. And it talks about how Sinatra kind of you know, moved out to Palm Springs and he set up camp out there. And he would pick up the Palm Peach paper every day and read stories of people having struggles. And anonymously, he would donate to somebody's funeral or donate to somebody this and just do it. And I think Springsteen's really, he's the largest bondholder in the state of New Jersey because he cares about the state. That's awesome, man. Uh, state Assemblywoman Valerie Veneri Huddle. Uh, out of Bergen, has introduced a proposal to make September 23rd the boss's birthday, Bruce Springsteen Day, in the state of New Jersey. As Mike just pointed out, he performs at numerous charitable concerts, contributes millions of dollars to philanthropic causes, encourages his audiences to give back. Bruce Day, make it happen. Thanks so much for listening to the GM Shuffle. Mike and I will be back next week. Combine talk is coming soon. <laughs>